The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix, and we'd recommend you check out the new documentary Descendant, now streaming on Netflix. This film by Margaret Brown is quite honestly one of our favorites of the year, and it's not just us. It's appearing on lots of Oscar preview lists. It's a richly layered story about the search for and the discovery of the Clotilda, the last known ship to arrive with enslaved Africans in the United States. But what it really is, is the story of the descendants of this ship, whose ancestors survived this horrible journey on the Clotilda, founded the community of Africa Town, which is now part of Mobile, and passed down their stories through the generations. This film, like these stories, is a true treasure. So check it out now on Netflix. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Elvis Mitchell about his new documentary, Is That Black Enough For You? As you'll hear, I'm a longtime fan of Elvis and have been listening to him, carefully listening to him for over a quarter century. And I'm not alone. If you've ever lived in L.A., you probably know Elvis as the longtime host of The Treatment on KCRW and also now available wherever you get your podcast. And he's even played himself on industry-wise shows like Entourage and BoJack Horseman. When Elvis interviews someone, he not only pays remarkable close attention to the work in front of him, but brings in the artist's body of work and then the whole history of cinema, television, music, popular art in general. And I found that once he identifies a running thread in an artist's work, it's impossible for me not to see that through line everywhere. As you'll hear in the interview, is that black enough does spend time explaining the dearth of real African-American representation throughout most of Hollywood's history. Elvis roots his own reception of this failure in insights from his grandmother, and from there provides a thorough and surprising look at black and white representation in film. Uh, I promise you won't ever see a tuxedo in a film the same way again. But at the heart, this film is a celebration of this explosion of black film, mainly in the period of 1968 to 1978, its place in the African-American film tradition, and yes, more surprises there, at least for me, and its effect on the wider culture. And yes, it is also a lament for the groundbreaking spirit of those years. Elvis has written film reviews for the New York Times and has appeared in documentaries like Elvis Goes There. He was a producer of the Blacklist films. Is That Black Enough For You is the first feature documentary he has directed, and it premiered at the New York Film Festival. Is That Black Enough For You will air on Netflix on Friday, November 11th. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do subscribe. You can also find us on Twitter at TopDogsPod, as well as Instagram at TopDogsPod as well. And now my conversation with Elvis Mitchell about Is That Black Enough For You? I want to go on the record here and say I am a longtime fan of your work. Oh, you're the one. I always wanted to meet you. <laughs> oh, there are a lot of us. I first started listening to you at KCRW in 1996. I ended up leaving LA for Atlanta, then New York, then San Francisco, and you followed me first on KCRW.com and then from your podcast. I'm a stalker. Okay, I'm your stalker. Is that what's going on here? <laughs> and I feel like I've learned more from you about how to see films, think about films, talk about films, ask questions about films than anyone. So thank you, first of all. No, thank you for saying that. I thank you for going back to the very beginning of the show. Holy smoke. And so I want to say this effort, 
This movie is no exception. At the risk of scaring the audience off, I think I learned more from these two hours than I have from any other two hours in my life. But it's still a lot of fun. I want to emphasize for everyone, it's still a lot of fun. Now, I think one of the things you're great at when you do interviews is you're great at finding this connective threads through someone's career. It's often surprising and it makes you receive their career. And in fact, near the end of this film, you talk a bit about the skill you have and try it out on Sidney Poitier. And he didn't love it that much. <laughs> <laughs> he was actually very generous about it. He wasn't He's actually making a joke about it as much as anything else. And it wasn't like I was trying to interview him for this film. It was trying to get him for my show. But there's another project I was on. At one point, I had been assigned a magazine profile. And for whatever reason, he would go, I don't know. And then he would talk to me for two hours. Just like, wait, no, please let me go into the future so I can record this on my phone. There were so many things I wanted from him. And to have got that. And he said it with a chuckle, but he still talked to me for a couple of hours. His daughter, Sydney, she walked her dad over and said, Dad, this is Elvis Mitchell. Oh, I know who this young man is. You should do his radio show. I don't know about that. So it's like, <laughs> it's like Groundhog Day with him. Okay, why aren't you going to do it this time? At one point, he was working on an, another volume of his autobiography. And then there's a point he had a project that he thought would be similar to that. I don't know, but he would always tell me, these incredible stories. And I included probably something that may have been off the record, but I'm just talking about that distance between the way people perceive you mm -hmm. and who you actually are. And I thought that was key to add to this piece of material. So. so let me try to find a thread here too. So very early on, before we focus on these key years in Black cinema, 1968 to 78, give or take, you talk about your grandmother and her relationship to cinema and to TV shows like the Andy Griffith shows. And I guess I was a little surprised by this at first, but then I shouldn't have been because- Why was it surprising to you? I'll tell you, yeah, I, I think it shouldn't have been because besides deep erudition and analytic practice that you bring to your work, you're also very sensitive to what's up on the screen and to your personal response. Yours isn't sort of a view from nowhere. It's deeply rooted in your own experience, I think. As is yours, I imagine. You know, I mean, I think we're honest with ourselves. We're not trying to pretend that this is some objective pursuit of truth. It's about taking what's in front of us and asking ourselves what is there and what is not there. And I wouldn't pretend that my grandmother is somebody who had an elevated approach to popular culture. She just knew what affected her and why it affected her. It was a very common sense attitude that I think has probably informed the way I think about culture and popular culture and fine art. Uh, especially as a person of color, you ask yourself, if you're a critical thinker in any way, but as a person of color, you ask yourself, what is not there and why is it not there? And what am I to infer and what am I to impute? She was old enough, she was a teenager when she saw Dracula that she could see the difference it made in her life and just being able to chart it in that way. And when that happens, suddenly as she probably start seeing these white people in my dreams, like, oh, oh. And she only went to a handful of movies just because she thought a lot of people I hear or did thought they were kind of nonsense. And I, what stopped her the last time was she went to a movie theater. I'm sure it was like some converted grain silo or warehouse building and a bat got loose in the theater. They stopped the rejection. She went, yeah, that's enough. When my twin sister and I would visit during the summers from Detroit, we would, you know, sophisticated city kids and let's turn on the TV. So we were to sit outside and watch the crawdads bloom, whatever those books are called. And, um, and she was, why are you watching this? What are you town just like this? Why do you think there are no black people in it? I'm six. Why are you putting this in my head? What are you doing to me? But she wanted me to be aware of what was going on. To your question, really made me evaluate who I am 
and the way I see the world. I didn't even think in matters that I had not before I started working on this project. Movies affected your grandmother's dreams, literally, but it has a deeper resonance as well. And I think you're getting at it here, which is, and your guests get it, Whoopi Goldberg, Samuel L. Jackson, Lawrence Fishburne, and others emphasize the importance of seeing African-American characters. And they often use this language of dreams, of fantasy. Jackson says it's a fantasy. If you saw a pirate, you wanted to be a pirate. It may seem a little obvious to us, but can you explain the importance of seeing Black characters up on the screen? One of the reasons that Western becomes recurrent in this, the talking about Westerns is, it's funny. I always flash on the kinds of things that Paul Thomas Anderson would say when Boogie Nice was released. In effect, said the idea of a Black cowboy was laughable and having Don Chico in those outfits. And I thought, maybe those outfits are funny, but a Black cowboy isn't funny. If you're from the South and my grandmother had a working farm, at some point you saw a Black person on a horse. And being on a horse gives you agency, gives you some control over your destiny. And not seeing a Black person like that, I mean, I make one point about representation. But another point is, and I hit on it when I show that beautiful scene that Gordon Park shot of those horses with the sunrise behind them and the learning tree. Just that kind of deprivation speaks to how degraded you feel when you have to sort of toss yourself into a pirate movie and see nobody that looks like you. Or even in the Western, the Black people are serving food and they're not on horses or they're out plowing. And again, they have nothing that suggests that they have any power over their own lives. And being beholden to the fantasy in a way that you basically got your nose pressed against the glass is what everybody talks about in this movie one way or another, even Zendaya. So it's not just that generation. Even she says, it'd be great to see, just see black kids playing or seeing black kids in a fantasy movie. We're in the 21st century and that's still a lack. That's still a deficit in this culture. Talk a lot about how the depictions you did see of African-Americans were surreal and dehumanizing, I think are some of the terms you use, you know, white actors with black in their faces, even cartoon characters. By the way, my mom loved Dumbo, but she pointed out to me like the crow scene. She knew there was something wrong about that scene. Like she she intuited intuited it. Cool. Um, okay. And so did your mom ended up affecting the way you think about this stuff, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And my dad, after I saw In the Heat of Night, talking about, isn't it weird that Rod Steiger won the award? You know, like, totally. <laughs> yeah, movies are a way of talking about race for everybody, I think, at least in my life. And you show, like, even some of the greats, Orson Welles, Lawrence Olivier, you know, putting on blackface to play Othello. And I think they were given a pass for this because, you know, it's Shakespeare. But you talk about the effect it had. And you have this great phrase, the diminution was a mountain. Thank you. Uh, it's a series of these things, and it's weird. It's the relationship you have, you watch some like general classic movies, which finally start to acknowledge these kinds of things in the last five or 10 years, but they've always been there. There are movies that are, again, classics. I've had friends who have said to me, I thought I know movies, but seeing that clip from an Alfred Hitchcock movie. You said, well, I think Alfred Hitchcock doesn't do that kind of thing, right? Um, no, it's an Alfred Hitchcock. And as much pleasure as you get from watching Singing in the Rain, that movie kind of, even in, gosh, the Godfather, and this is meant to be a judgment of those characters, but you still, and it, and I picked the least egregious version of that because there's that whole scene with Sonny going on about, you know, the policy bank and the numbers, which again, it's supposed to tell us who these guys are, but you still got to swallow hard and just this accretion of insults. And it's just a really powerful thing, which is why this era that I build the movie around was so important because it really sort of said no to all of that in the most grandiose terms. You think about a movie like Mandingo and how that 
gives rise to Robert Maplethorpe. I mean, just the unvarnished sort of invitation to Black sexual life and Black romance that these movies offer. And there's so much going on. The issue for me was just about how much to try to pack into this time that we had. And we were lucky that Netflix gave us a lot of time. But it's at some point, somebody come to me and asked, well, what about this? And I said, well, I really tried and was working to try to get that in and just couldn't make it work. There's so many instances of that. So really had to pick and choose. At one point, David Fitcher goes, if you're lucky, you get to see 60% of what you were trying to do. Oh, <laughs> okay. This movie has a number of surprises. And one of the surprises for me is once you show Olivier early on in playing Othello, later he comes back and gives us a little bit of wisdom about the nature of playing a hero, how when you're young, you don't want to play a hero, how you get older, you're more comfortable playing a hero. And I really felt like this is interesting. You're not canceling. I hate to put it this bluntly, but I think some people will think about it this way. Once they see Olivier up there in blackface, they're going to be like, done, we're done with him. No, I wasn't allowed to do that. I mean, I certainly point out, as you mentioned, Orson Welles. But Orson Welles ran the Mercury Theater. He had Black actors working with him. There's a Black actor named Helen Martin who has a very small part in Cotton Comes to Harlem. She got her start with the Mercury Theater with Orson Welles in the 30s. She had gone back a long way. So none of this is to make the easy case. And that Olivier quote about heroism is something that kind of really bounced around in my head probably probably my entire life. And once I started to work on this, uh-huh. I'll put it this way, the mainstream take. When you get a chance to decide what you want to do about heroism because you have different depictions of heroism to choose from. If you're a person of color, you don't get a chance to be nuanced about it. And also, you've been waiting your whole life to play a hero. So when you're young, you don't debunk heroism. You embrace it. I mean, even Ron O'Neill playing Superfly, playing an anti-hero, plays it like a hero. There's no hand-wringing in it. And I'm so glad you pointed that out because so few people brought that up. I want that in there for a reason. And as you say, for that kind of mirror effect, to kind of show that I wasn't trying to basically put Olivier in a box and just brush him off. As you're pointing out, this is a really complex story. I think in addition to Black filmmakers later kind of taking these genres and grabbing these genres and making them their own, I think one of the very interesting things you point out is how the same signifier in these earlier films can mean different things. The opposite things for Black and white characters. I'm thinking about formal wear. On a white character, it you know, indicates luxurious leisure. On black characters, it means it's time to get down to work. And I'll never watch a Cary Grant movie the same way again after this. But I do think it's really interesting given that, and I don't think I fully understood this before, how important dress is in those movies of the 70s for the black characters. What they wear, the platform shoes and the coats and the hats and like dress is important. Oh my God, it's, I think it's an establishment of an aesthetic that's not the same as the mainstream aesthetic. There's so much of those things big and have like big colors and I think in some way are about flight. You know, they're like winged. They're not about being stranded, trapped, bound by gravity, being earthbound, being held close to the ground. And they're about freedom, those colors as well. And I'm glad you picked up on that too because clothes say so much about you and about character. And it's interesting too, as you're talking about this, I, there's a, a cliff from Conkham to Harlem. Is it going to be black enough for me? And at one point, we see a credit that says, costumes designed by Anna Hill Johnstone. And she also did the costumes for The Godfather. So mm. if anybody understands how clothes can sort of proclaim your presence or offer you a way to hide in the shadows, she got that. And to be able to embrace those two aesthetics and to also make so many of those clothes about freedom, I mean, even the way those detectives are dressed, so beautifully. 
and the character that Calvin Lockhart plays, who's this minister who's out to fleece his congregation. He's wearing these beautiful handmade double-breasted suits with covered buttons, with working cuffs. There's so much detail that goes into that. And there's even this kind of linkage is made between his character and Godfrey Cambridge. They're both wearing double-breasted suits, but they're very different renditions of those suits, the shirts that match the ties. There's so much to say about that. But also, and I was really heartened that you make the Cary Grant point, because I mean, there's nobody who symbolizes to me coming up from the lower depths as much as Cary Grant. This kid was going off to join a circus when he was 13 years old, and that built a whole new image for himself and was allowed freedom to do that. And those clothes for him symbolize, you know, that every possibility was open to him. And if you were a black person in a tuxedo, you were in a box. This is what you were doing. Even if you weren't doing that, you'd be presumed to be the person who was there to drop off drinks or bus tables. I just want to back up a little bit before the credits, and you talk about how things changed in the late 60s from white movies to the Black and African-American kind of tradition that we see there, the sudden explosion of Black characters and Black stories on the screen. And you then pose a question that I think runs throughout the whole movie, which is the thirst for these films never went away, but they did. What happened? And to me, this is a personal question. It's kind of a cultural question. It's sort of like, what happened to the electric car? Kind of question, but also it's kind of a marketing question, isn't it? These films made money. They had an audience. Why aren't they still around? Why aren't there more of them? It's that question of the reductive nature of the way black culture is viewed. I guess not a question, but a statement, actually. As soon as it fails, well, we try, but I guess nobody wants to do it anymore. We've been hearing all these talk about the end of the romantic comedy, but they still keep making them. And now that George Clooney and Julie Roberts have succeeded with one, now you're going to see a story where they're back. Just have to do them this way. So nobody ever gave up on that. Nobody ever gives up on them. There's talk about them going away, but they never quite go away, do they? But the other hand, with a Black film, if it's a Western or a comedy or a melodrama or in a few instances, fantasy at some point, first and foremost, they're Black films. So Black film itself is a genre. So when a Black film in any genre fails, it's a failure of Black film. And the more and more of that, we see it's like, oh, well, I guess that cycle's over. Again, because genres can be reduced to cyclical behavior. The Western has its high point, then it disappears. Then it comes back in a de facto way, then that disappears. Then it, there's an attempt to bring it back as the Western, that disappears. So the West, we'll hide the Western in Star Wars. But then it comes back in that way. Anyway, those movies, genres get a chance to really come back any number of ways, dressed up in other kinds of things. When black film fails, it's looked upon as being this failure of a culture. And this presumption also that white people didn't go to see them, which as Ron O'Neill says in that interview, we played in, in Boston for 20 weeks and ran out black people three weeks in. So that tells you a lot too. And the lesson from that, of course, was that not to make black films, but to make films where white people are heroes again. I mean, that was really a thing that's taken away from all this. You even point out though, that there's a way in which filmmakers or producers couldn't see what was right in front of them. They couldn't see Harry Belafonte for the talent he was. They couldn't see the chemistry he had with Dorothy Dandridge. It's like there's a, some sort of filter that doesn't allow them to actually see what's right in front of them. I think there's a willfulness. You say filter. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and I'm not trying to look for metaphors here. We can be a little sorry, genteel about it and call it institutional racism. But the fact is it's still this threat this fear of offering Black characters some primacy and 
centering the films around. And what does that mean? The most dangerous idea in those times was interracial mingling. Again, it's just before the loving decision was rendered by the Supreme Court. When the idea that we're talking about race implies that somehow everybody else is lesser than white people. We're not different races. It may be different ethnicities, but we're not different races. And so Harry Belafonte, biracial himself, but represented so much, he's such a threatening figure that he's not allowed to use his own voice in the movie at the time when he's got records on the pop charts. I mean, if that's not complete willfulness, if that's not saying, no, we can't let you be your entire self in a movie. And that's why I wanted to include that great clip from Us Against Tomorrow, where he's learned to play the vibraphones and he's playing and accompanying himself and singing. That was such a big deal for me that because just seeing that movie as a kid, and seeing the way he inhabits it, he's clearly built to be somebody who should be a world beater. In the first third of the movie, everybody's flirting with him and falling in love with him. At one point, there's an elevator operator who's flirting with him. And in that club scene where, by the way, Cicely Tyson is somebody sitting at the bar who has no dialogue. I mean, that movie's so full of talent. And the very young, and in fact, his first screen role, Richard Bright, walks across the room and throws himself at him. And the movie doesn't judge the character. He's a gangster, but it does not make a big deal about anything else. In any place else, he would have been taken out and beaten for that. But the character is in control of his destiny too. And I just remember seeing the Godfather thinking, oh, that's El Neri. That's the guy from Odds Against Tomorrow. But again, this is all going back to this saying, no, we cannot allow that. And even Harry saying, where does this character come from? There was a Quache dilemma and the Eddie Murphy dilemma. They would walk into a milieu, change the world for the better, and then leave by themselves. So it wasn't like that went away in the 60s. And the movie in 78 probably had gone ahead to 1982 to The Golden Child or 48 Hours or any of these other movies where Eddie Murphy comes in and saves everybody or, or Beverly Hills Cop and then walks out by himself. That ideal existed. And for Harry, who was trained as an actor, and as I say in the movie, the way he performed, you can see his actor's training shaping the way he delivers so long to communicate with an audience, to not do that, to deny that part of himself. I can't imagine the kind of psychic pain that must have inflicted upon him. But that sheer force of will, and also his delight in talking about how he didn't need movies. He wanted them, but he didn't need them. I think often in documentaries, the narration is written last. It could still be great, but here, I really felt like the narration was driving a lot of what we see. And I mean, this is a compliment. I think it's very writerly. It could be kind of a popular history that's illustrated by actual movies. But it seems like a summation of years of insight on your part. Did you sort of write first and then look for your evidence later? What was the process like for you? Gosh, that's a really great question because it was going to go one way when it was going to be a book. And when I started to do this, well, I had to figure out what it was I wanted to say. And then I wrote and picked clips to support that because I know how to shape an argument as a writer. And this was a whole new skill for me to pick up, but I also know how to pick images. Again, the problem became, what do I pick? Because I want to write something to deliver as narration. And then I can show you some of these notebooks. I would have 20 different scenes. Do I pick that? Do I pick that? So as I was putting together the narration, also the making clips choices and working with my great editors. I came up with what I thought was an approach, which was to say, and it's almost timed like this, exactly. Every five minutes, you have a moment that makes you go, wait, what? Wait, what? 
wait, well, I wanted to do that because I, there was so much information to pack in that if there weren't these kind of mini climaxes that were advancing us chronologically, they would just feel like an onslaught of information. So I had to try to be as strategic as I could be about these bigger points that I was hoping would be compelling enough that you would sit and let the movie wash over you a little bit as you went from one sort of big beat to another. I think the clips you've chosen are wonderful. And I want to talk about that a little bit because I think a lot of times when we see a clip of an African-American character in an African-American story, the clip is typically, I think, oriented towards a white audience. How do you mean? It's often the character speaking, not in your film, but in other films, other things I've seen, truly righteous anger, and I mean truly, or a plea for justice. Here, in your film, there is no, they call me Mr. Tibbs, right? You, <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of your clips are short on the short side, but they often show people in dialogue, in movement. If someone's going to make a righteous stand, it's literally like the way they stand or walk. I think of Shaft making his way through Manhattan. I wondered how you were choosing your clips. I was very specific to do exactly what it was you were talking about. You were the first person to notice that. I can't thank you enough for getting that. I wanted that boldness that doesn't come down to, you got that so perfectly. So often when we see these compilations of the greatest movies, it's that they call me Mr. Tibb. It's these declamatory moments that sort of don't suggest any kind of inner life, but rather a statement of this is the black person on the screen rather than these are black people on screen. And there are ways to even illustrate that. There's a clip package, the montage of all these entrances, which are about sheer effrontery and pride rather than saying, I'm here by myself. And I want you to know I'm here by myself. When I leave by myself, I'll be by myself. I think about what you said whenever I watch those clip reels of the greatest scenes of all time. And when I was telling people that Billy D. Williams was going to be a part of this, there wasn't a woman of a certain age of any color who didn't say, they would repeat that line, you waiting for my arm to fall off, and do it with a Billy D. Williams imitation. And you could see like the faraway twinkle in their eyes as they remember seeing that scene. And I just thought, why isn't that, if we're talking about the greatest movie scenes of all time, a scene where so primed to make us fall in love with him, you can see the manicure gleaming on his hand as he reaches his hand in the frame before we see his face. This is all to give us some sense of who this character is and, and the kind of presence he has and the way he occupies the movie. Why has that clip never been in a movie about these kinds of things? Or even that playful moment that he has with Diana Ross from Mahogany, or that great scene of Cicely Tyson not doing the big sort of, I'm blacked out here, but just no. I realize this is the way I've got to make the farm works. So I will do this and this and this and this. These moments that aren't about summations of the movie, but about point in the character's evolution, those are the kinds of clips I wanted to pick. I think, as I said, the narration carries a lot of weight here, but I also like the way you let the images do the talking often. You already brought up one scene where the mob boss's lackey comes up to Harry Belafonte, calls him baby, and in a seductive way offers him a shiny car. And you don't comment on that. Um, no. Let it run. But another great example, I think, is when you discuss George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, you give us some sense of why it might be considered an allegory of race and civil rights. But you sort of let the images do the talking and invite us, I think, to interpret and connect them and to make our own sorts of stories about how this is allegory. At a certain point, both Steven Soderbergh and David Fitcher said, don't be afraid of the movie moments. So that's using the power of the medium, being able to learning some craft, playing around with what that can do. And I'm glad you saw that. I think for me, it's a big point in the movie early on. And then I worried a little bit about it because I think it carries so much weight, you know, so much 
is not just about the movies, but there are social statements to be made there. I didn't want to have it rob the movie where I wanted it to go because I didn't want to keep a sense of entertainment. I wanted, as you said, to be fun and kind of playful. I was trying to do a lot. And you know, it was great talking to you because there's so much on this of the movie that you really picked up on that people haven't brought up before. And this conversation makes me feel successful in doing well, this. You're extremely successful. Not, nothing to do with me. As we're moving up through the 1960s, we get to the important year, 1968, and you show us Bobby Kennedy announcing the assassination of MLK. And then you bring us all the way back to the 19-teens and 20s, right at that moment where we're going to get into those movies. You talk about Oscar Michaud, who I mainly knew as a pre-Harlem Renaissance writer, and Alice Guy Blachet, who I didn't know anything about. So thank you. Can you tell us a bit about this timing? Why, right when we're about to get there, you jump us back to this earlier period. Here's the thing, and I know you know this to be the case. Movies don't exist in isolation. You can't talk about one movie without talking about where it came from, about the provenance, about the path that led us there. I tried to recognize early on that that's something we could do with this, that these moments don't exist in isolation, and that Black movies have always been responding to the culture rather than trying to shape it, as I say in the movie. So often, especially that period of people such as Alice Guy Boucher and Spencer Williams and Oscar Michaud, who had to do that thing basically from being along in his traveling all-stars and motorcades, where you find the actors, you produce the movie, you direct the movie. Sometimes you act in it because you can't get enough people. You probably combine genres because how many movies are you going to get to make? When you're done with all that, you go and book the movie in the circuit and then travel with it to make sure it's promoted. So your job isn't done once the film is finished, once you've lost your final cut. You're constantly working. And while you're out promoting a movie, you've got to think about what your next one's going to be. So you're never done. And also about so many of these movies coming out of times where there's a riot every decade leading up to the 1960s. So people shouldn't think that those were like one-off moments that came out of nowhere. And again, that becomes a thing too. How much do you pack in? Do I go into the riots in the 20s in the East and after World War One, Do I deal with the riots in the Rust Belt just before World War II? I mean, again, just to go back and show what those movies were and that they were about a kind of social realism in and of themselves. And so many of these movies are the best ones to deal with a kind of social realism, be it in Nothing But a Man or the movies of Oscar Michaud or Alice E. Blachet or, for God's sakes, Bill Greaves or, you know, the crowning moment of Charles Burnett. I mean, so many of these movies were about these moments that 60s and 70s movies in the mainstream were trying to do, make movies about what was happening in the world rather than leaving it out. That's their best, these Black movies never ignored that. Once we get into the main body of what we're going to talk about here in 1968 to 1978, there's so much to discuss. It's an incredible, rich tapestry. I can't possibly pull out every thread, but let me try in a couple. One is the importance of music. I think you do a great job of really showing this. The Isaac Hayes score for Shaft, Curtis Mayfeld's soundtrack for Superfly, Earth, Wind & Fire, doing first this avant-garde jazz. I didn't know that was them, by the way, uh, when I saw that film. And then later the music we know them best for. And of course, Marvin Gaye. Can you talk about how they were really empowered as true, like co-creative directors in some ways of these films? Oh, no. I mean, that's something you hear Mario talking about his dad basically bringing in Earth, Wind & Fire as co-conspirators, you know? And they really didn't have much of a career. At that point, Maurice White had been Ramsey Lewis's drummer and produced some of the tracks in the Ramsey Lewis trio. The band hadn't really exploded yet. If you listen to the first couple of Earth, Wind & Fire albums, they're really experimental. They're trying out different kinds of production techniques as well as different kinds of songs. Just to hear them still experimenting and working with Melvin 
and basically changing the pitch of their singing voices. So there, there isn't that sort of R&B chorale sense that you got from their later records, even a couple of years later, but them sounding just as gritty and slightly off key as Melvin is. Those are slave chants that they're like playing hard bop filigrees with. So it's incredible stuff in there. And Melvin was always a entrepreneur because he understood that if you just made the story about a black movie, nobody would write about it. So he understood it's got to be about taking the X rating and self-applying the X rating because he recognized that it wasn't copyrighted. So anybody could own it. I mean, that's, again, so much invention that goes on there. But to do that and then to use that soundtrack and you would hear stories about him going from town to town when the movie was opening and selling the soundtrack in the lobbies, like to carry the albums with him to, to make sure that the music got out. And on those days where there were lots of radio ads for black movies because nobody could afford to take out TV ads, you heard the music playing. You go, oh, where's that music from? And you hear the announcer go, this is from the soundtrack of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, available on Stax Records and Tapes. Oh, okay. I can still go out and get it. And then the following example of Curtis Mayfield not knowing because he released the Superfly soundtrack on his own label that it wasn't standard to put the record out early. And John Kelly, who ran Warner Brothers in the 70s and later ran Sony Pictures, said, I guarantee you that him doing that and that first of all, the record was great. So when it was great and started getting played immediately, by the time the movie came out, people in the areas where that movie was played knew the movie already. And it was one of those rare cases where there's a single release of almost every song from the movie, from the soundtrack. That does an enormous amount. I mean, that's, in addition to it being such an astonishing artistic achievement, it was insanely successful. Before that, though, the example of Shaft, which again comes from Isaac Hayes doing that piece of music from Once Upon a Time in the West for Walk On By, which makes Gordon Park so, oh, this guy can do movie music because that sounds like movie music. I just did an event two days ago at Indy Memphis. I wanted to do it because I knew Willie Hall who was the drum in the bar case, lived there. And so he's talking about playing those 16ths in Shaft. And I said, as the movie started, they showed Shaft. And I was saying, it looks like you're basically you're playing to the way he's walking. He said, absolutely. We had a metronome doing a count to the way Richard Roundtree walks. So the 16th are about his footsteps. And it's following all that. So all that then being boiled down to the beginning of Saturday Night Fever, and that being a lesson. And then the 80s being completely about the soundtrack coming out first. You know, there's no flash dance about that soundtrack coming out to sell those songs. And then from then on out, the entire 80s and 90s are about the music video for the song for the soundtrack before you see the movie. That's all from the Black experience. Yeah, thanks for correcting that. I think I've repeated that error that Robert Stigwood was the innovator there who saw you should release the soundtrack first. I think I repeated that when we spoke with Mark Monroe about the Bee Gees. So I'm not, saying, I'm, I'm not trying to correct anybody. I'm just saying it's something that gets lost to time because yes. there's no investment in covering black culture that way. I can tell you as a kid, like I guess being in high school, seeing Saturday Night Fever with my friends, we all looked at each other and go, this is Shaft. I mean, right <laughs> down to the way the backbeat is being used to coordinate with the foot, with the walking. It's like, He's wearing a leather jacket. He's, it's, just, it's unbelievable. And of course, there's nobody around to write about it. These days, if one person mentioned it, everybody would follow. And this comes down to, for me, the way I define myself, being able to look at all parts of popular culture and just seeing those kinds of moments and feeling they should be acknowledged in the way they hadn't been before. Another thread, someone who runs throughout this whole film, who's not a screen actor per se or a director of films, is Muhammad Ali. And thank, thank you for getting there. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. 
But go ahead. I'm sorry. Can you explain his importance for the construction of masculinity? Whatever you think is really important about Muhammad Ali in this period, how he affected film. His rise as a pop culture figure and a sports figure was both inspirational and directly reflected during that period. This idea of self-possession. There was a period where even the New Yorker was calling him Cassius Clay rather than Muhammad Ali. Mm. And not giving up on that. That's why I connect him to Harry Belafonte. Both coming up at the same time. At the time that Harry Belafonte decides not to make movies anymore, he's still Cassius Clay coming out of the Olympics before he makes that big change and forces the world to change the way people of color are regarded. And by that period, like 1968 to the early 70s, he's out of boxing. He's still, he's in the movies, but his impact is still felt. The kind of not waiting for that, as you so wonderfully put it, not waiting for that Mr. Tips moment, not waiting for permission, but instead staking out a, a claim for himself. The way that Shaft is regarded in that opening is like watching Ali come into the ring and not wait to be asked for something, but also rather than being depicted in an archetypal way, breaking through those archetypes. The influence of Ali lives in Black culture in that moment. So even Muhammad Ali isn't boxing, he doesn't go back to, he doesn't really reclaim his stature in the, in the world until he's able to finally fight and, and goes in and fights Joe Frazier, the big fight. Movies and a lot of these actors are already subsumed who and what he was and brought that to the movies. I am so glad you mentioned that. Well, in addition to the men, and again, I have to admit my experience with the cinema, you know, when I was younger was mainly focused on the characters like Shaft and- That's the stuff that got the attention. Completely yeah, understood. it was powerful and interesting. And yeah, and of course, Richard Pryor and all his work was big in our lives. But you point out the importance of Black women, Pam Greer, Cicely Tyson, Diane Carroll, Tamara Dobson. I figure you can't make a movie about this and not mention Diana Sands, who was this incredible, luminous, chameleon figure- who's in so many different kinds of films, but also too was building towards this moment that would have been probably this apotheosis of her career as she got the chance to do Claudine. And when she got too sick to do it, she handed it off. Rather than bury it and say, well, if I can't have it, nobody can, recognizing the importance of what this moment was going to be and giving it to somebody she knew could do it. And by the way, the day we started shooting this documentary, shooting the Harry Belafonte interview, was the day that Diane Carroll died. So I just thought, oh my God, I'm finally getting to do this. And somebody who wow. said she wanted to be a part of this, who I hadn't called since I'd met her, but I just had her number waiting for the opportunity to bring her in. She makes the news that she died and we're traveling to see Harry and wonder, well, I guess we should bring this up. And we walk in the door in his apartment. And he goes, well, I guess you're at the news that Diane passed away today. Yeah, that's awful. But let's do this. Like, oh, good. Because you, you recognize that, that life goes on. We, we want to celebrate, but also document this moment, these moments. And then it's not just those two Dianes, Diane Carroll and Diana Sands, but also Diana Ross. Whoopi Goldberg talks about seeing in her motion picture debut, she could sing and move her hands. And by the way, she could act, you know, because <laughs> we certainly have now seen more and more pop figures moved into movies and you kind of wonder if they can act, but take on the role of playing somebody else who still lived in pop culture. You still heard Billy all these songs on the radio. That was an audacious move to me. And she both made those songs her own and paid tribute to Billie Holiday in them. No small thing either. She didn't try to bulldoze them and turn them into Motown songs. There's so much about the way these women, I think, were not disregarded in these movies. And then this great moment I had with Toni Morrison, when you mentioned Pam Greer, when it was going to be a book Tony offered to write an introduction for when I was telling her about it. 
we had dinner one night and she just started going on about her upset at this really one-dimensional depiction of Pam Greer in people writing up. This would have been May 2007, 2008. And she just started going on and she was talking about just grabbing napkins off tables or writing these things down. So I made sure I went being the ultimate <laughs> verbatim. Yeah, that's a great story. And when she talks about Black women's moral courage, it really means something. One of the things you note is the difference between Black and white characters in this era. While the Hackmans, Hoffmans, and Pacinos are wallowing in misery, the Black characters are showing confidence, courage. They're even having fun up there, individually, with love interests, with friends. And you even suggest by 1978 in films like The Sting and Rocky, we see the white actors sort of picking up this courage, often, as you note, under the direction of the same producers who had been making the Black films. It's really kind of amazing because one of the things we showed, first of all, there's a book called Trick Baby that became a movie that I'm convinced and I ended up running into a friend of mine who was one of the writers on Trick Baby. And he went, yeah, we always wonder why they made it contemporary, why they left that part out. Because for me, watch it, a handful of friends who read Trick Baby, you watch this thing at the end, you wonder, is Robert Redford going to come out and say that he's biracial at the end of the movie? Is that, <laughs> that, gonna, is that really going to be the sting? Because it's the beginning of the movie, Claude Earl Jones, James Earl Jones' father, running these scams, and he gets the black character gets killed. And it's just a revenge mission. Like, wow, that's, that could be really interesting. Clearly, that didn't happen. Those same producers do Billy Dynamite, which has this cast of Broadway actors. That include Roscoe Orman and Ty in the Sands. It brings us back to that. You're mentioning that, too. You're talking about Pacino, and it's you can't think about the guy who delivered us uh, Serpico in Dog Day Afternoon directing The Wiz. Is this temperamentally the right guy to be doing that? I mean, <laughs> if he's made these movies about these people who are basically being ground down by societal oppressors, and this is supposed to be a movie about people who are fighting oppression and come out of it the other side happier, is this the guy to do that? I'm not quite so sure. But all these instances of these actors who probably waited their entire careers to get a chance to be in front of the camera. And going back to the Olivier quotes that you highlighted a few minutes ago, we're not about to do that and found ways to sort of bring these complicated changes on what movie stardom was. If you're Superfly, that's certainly an anti-heroic cast to that character, but you can play it in a way that shows you belong there, that there's a confidence in this character's decisions, that he is goal-oriented in a way that movie stars generally tend to be. So you bring really another layer of complication to what could be a really very civil character. And the way a lot of people talk about Superfly, and without having seen it, they make these suppositions about it. And it happens in a lot of those movies that are termed black exploitation that you would say, well, you know, these movies are promoting this. No, you see the Mac, the lead character ends up exiting that milieu with his tail between his legs. He's lost. The same thing happens to Willie Dynamite. He ends up like walking, leaving all that stuff behind. So even these movies, these summations of them that were saying that these were really depictions of the black community that would let the white people think one thing about black people. Well, no, if you saw the movies in Toto, it wasn't at all about trying to say that criminal behavior should be supported or espoused or imitated or emulated. Those movies weren't saying any of that kind of stuff. There are all kinds of complicated questions, really, I think, dense and really voluminous sort of depictions of Black life that were given a short shrift in the way these movies are treated. I knew you'd surprise me at the end. However, I thought you were going to end. I knew it wouldn't be. You know, I thought maybe we typically in a documentary like this, we might do who are the Black filmmakers today who are living that legacy. And you do a little bit of that, but that's not your end. Your end comes back to Sidney Poitier, the last man standing. 
Can you talk about that choice? Because I think even though that era had ended and that moment was not followed up on, Sydney showed that there was still life in Black actors and Black actors are still movie stars. And I'd be hard-pressed to think of anybody who had the career yet, who in 1968 was the biggest star in the world and two years later was completely irrelevant, being mocked in places even such as the New York Times. And four years later, recognizes that he has this relationship with Black audiences. Why not speak directly to them in a way he never had before? Be in control of his own destiny and make the movies he wanted to make. And make these movies Uptown Saturday Night and Let's Do It Again and A Piece of the Action and become as big a star as he had been in these movies where he wasn't surrounded by Black characters. And to not give up on himself or Black audiences, those two things are interconnected and they're both key. He didn't give up on Black audiences, even though the movie business did. I just have to ask you, you're so attuned to music. And so when the credit music is Alessandro Alessandroni, I had to ask why. You know, obviously he's related to the Spaghetti Westerns and some of the later movies like Opening a Misty Beethoven, that kind of soft porn from the 70s. Why did you choose a song from him? I mean, it's, for me, it's that relationship between you know, Isaac Hayes and Morricone. And yeah. he's a person I got to talk to. I got to interview Alessandroni at one point and to ask him about the whistle from Duck You Sucker. And he's like, I'm too old to do that. Really? And he did the whistle for me. He's like, wow. Now I <laughs> For me, so much of this story is about the conversation between cultures and the conversation between Morricone and Isaac Hayes, though the dialogue, I should say, that was started by one that the other heard and then picked up on, that then made its way into movies, that then made its way back to pop music. I mean, it's one of these things you can sort of put it in, hopefully not draw attention to it, but people like you who know what's there, who know what they're hearing can respond to it. So thank you for getting that. Thank you so much for being here today. And I want to thank you for this film. Incredible education. And this will encourage you to go out and see some of these films and, and to see them in context of American culture, American history, Black culture, Black history. And as you said, the interplay between all these various threads. So thank you again, Elvis. It's been a pleasure. Completely my pleasure. Thank you. Have a good day. And thank you for seeing the movie with the way you saw it and for really taking it in and having this bigger understanding of what it was I was trying to do. That really makes me very happy. I can't thank you enough for this. We love to ask our guests if they have a hidden gem, a documentary film that they don't think gets the attention it deserves. That's easy. Portrait of Jason. It's a movie that basically by framing itself, quote unquote, in the independent and dramatic world, in so many ways, I think it redefines what the documentary should have been at a point where document that was different had to be about pop culture, about Bob Dylan or something like that. You can make it about gender issues and race issues and also make it exciting and make it feel up to the moment and still have to ask questions that comply to this very day. I think there's nothing else like it still. Mm -hmm.